0: Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 200. 200! Woohoo! We are bringing back certified financial planner Kyle Mast to talk about things you should be considering on your journey to financial freedom.
1: Don't know what comes up later on. And if you have a million dollar 401k or pre tax IRA, you don't have a million dollars. You have a million dollars minus tax. What you have in there, you, there's a liability built into that account still. And that needs to be. Mitigated somehow.
0: Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me as always is my Paragon of Virtue co-host, Scott Trench.
2: Is that a, is that a signal, Mindy?
0: <laughs> Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else. To introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe that financial freedom is attainable no matter when or where you're starting.
2: That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big-time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, or deal with the good problems that come from becoming wealthy early in life, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so that you can launch yourself towards those dreams.
0: Normally, Fridays are Finance Fridays, where we dive into a listener's financial situation and see what sort of ideas we can give them to consider that may further them down the path towards financial independence. But today is episode 200, and we wanted to do something really fun for this momentous occasion. We brought back a show favorite, Kyle Mast, to come in and give us some things to think about on our journey. And frankly, some of these questions are rather selfish questions because they're questions that I have, and I figure that if I have them talking about financial freedom all the time. I'm sure other people have had them too. So uh, Scott, without further ado, let's bring in Kyle.
2: When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets,
0: Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com.
2: NerdWallet, finance smarter.
0: As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval. And terms of each credit card issuer apply.
3: This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
0: $5 minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account and to obtain bonus. Visit navyfederal.org for more terms and conditions. Kyle Nast, welcome back to the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. I'm so excited to have you on again for our very special episode 200.
1: Thanks for having me back. It's always good to talk to you guys. I appreciate appreciate the chance.
0: Today is a bit of a selfish episode for me because these are questions that I have based on some of my personal situations right now. And I thought, well, if I have these questions, I bet other people have them too. So I figured what better way to get them answered than by Kyle, the master of everything. So, oh, Kyle, master of everything. Did you catch that, Scott? Uh, I made a pun. That was pretty
2: good. I like that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's jump right into it. I have the option at work to contribute to a traditional 401k or a Roth 401k. And I've always thought that I should contribute to a traditional because then I reduce my taxable income, I pay less taxes, the world is all wonderful. But Scott here contributes to the Roth 401k and we had a rather lively discussion over which one was better and we're not sure. So Kyle, which one of us is right?
1: Uh, Both of you probably.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When does it make sense to choose Roth over traditional?
1: Yeah. So you have different kind of different factors. And I always will ask people what your ultimate goal is. You know, if your ultimate goal is you're going to retire in three to five years and in three to five years, your income's going to plummet. So you're both working right now or one person is working right now and your income is higher. Putting that 26,000 into your 401k for those three to five years till retirement pre-tax non Roth is probably the best way to go just because your income's so high right now. If you're thinking of it, you're a traditional type retiree, you're going to retire in those three to five years. You can start pulling that money out in a way lower tax bracket than you're in right now in general. So that's maybe a base case when people think of a retiree working a typical nine to five job. However, the Roth Roth accounts, Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks are very, very special the fact that you can put something in and get tax-free growth forever for the rest of your life anyways is a big deal and it's becoming a bigger deal you know as we have uh programs in in our country that are maybe a bit underfunded you know i don't want to get too political i'm just i want to talk about numbers but if you look at the math of things there's two ways to pay for social programs you either raise taxes or you raise inflation and you print money Inflation happens, or you raise taxes to pay for those programs. Either way, if you have money in a Roth account that's growing tax free, all that growth helps you hedge against that inflation or the the printing of money or the raising of taxes because you don't have to pay taxes on it. That's more of a long term game. And if maybe if you're in a higher income bracket and you're paying a lot of taxes anyways, and contributing to a pre tax account will save you on taxes, but you have a long term goal of giving some money tax free to your kids. Or you just know you believe that taxes will go up in the future, then you want to go with a Roth. I'm I am partial to a Roth for in many many cases, unless there are other specific things you want to stay below a tax bracket, like for a uh, healthcare subsidy uh, qualification. If you're self-employed, you know that might might be a reason you want to stay below uh, a certain tax bracket. There's other reasons you'll want to stay below a bracket. You know, this last year we had these stimulus checks that came out. And there's huge incentive to stay below the 150 thousand mark for a a jointly filing uh, couple, so that would be a reason to stay under. You know, there's everything from enhanced child tax credits this year, a lot of different things. So it really depends on the situation. But in general, I don't want to. I'll say I lean towards Scott's opinion in general. You know, if you're if you're thinking of building long term, (laughs) long term good stable wealth i would envision and people have said this for a long time and it's taken a long time to happen but i would envision that the roth accounts will be less and less available from governments not just in our country but in the future they may say okay there's a cap on this roth account you can't put any more in it because you just have so much in there you can't contribute to roth accounts anymore but everything that you've put in them is okay things like that could happen they eliminated the roth ira stretch which is basically you could have a million dollars in your Roth IRA, pass it to your kid and they have to take a required distribution from it based on their life expectancy. They wouldn't pay tax on it, but they could take out just a little bit each year for their whole life and let it grow the whole time. That was eliminated. So now there's a, a smaller time frame when they c- your kids get to take it tax-free, but they can't stick it in there for their whole life and let it grow. So that's just the precursor in my opinion. And there's other people would agree with me and people who disagree with me that maybe down the road, more stuff like that will happen to where Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks aren't as available. So yeah, any any questions on that? That's a kind of a broad sense of it.
2: I just wanna chime in and say, I, I agree completely with the analysis and that, that's kind of exactly well, of how I think about Yeah, that's how, <laughs> exactly how I think about it. If, if, you're, if you're like running a formulaic approach to FI inside of a spreadsheet and saying, I make 100,000 or $150,000 a year, and I'm gonna retire with 1.2 million in the bank um, across my retirement accounts and my after-tax brokerage accounts, and I'm not gonna earn another penny. You know, I'm gonna retire at 35 or 40. I'm not gonna earn another penny until I formally retire, hit retirement age and get social security or whatever. Then the 401k makes a lot of sense to me because that's when you do things like the Roth conversion ladder, and that's where the mad scientist's approach really comes into play, and a lot of those types of things. And inside of that formula, the, the 401k makes a lot of sense because, hey, I'm able to reduce my taxable income now in a lower tax environment in the future, I'm gonna be able to do that. But to me, and in spite of all the things you can argue inside of that, like, our tax rates gonna go up? And even though you're in $150,000 tax bracket today or whatever the tax bracket is at that, weight, at that income, maybe they're higher for the 30 or $40,000 that you're gonna withdraw every year in retirement and you're still going to pay more in overall taxes because you're not actually arbitraging those tax rates so even even if you get outside of that argument the big thing for me is a simple and perhaps uh i don't know aggressive arrogance about my life (laughs) and the way this is gonna go where i just don't see a world in which i fail to earn income below a really low tax bracket in my adult life, even if I stop working for a number of per- a period of years, because I plan to have investment income, real estate income, um, side hustles that happen to generate money, those types of things. Uh, I, I am married, my wife may work because she loves it, not because she has to. So there's so many different ways that this could go. For me, I just feel like the Roth is the safer bet. Even though I'm in a high tax bracket, I think they're gonna be higher in the future in a general sense. And I believe it's, it's unlikely that I'm actually going to go on and earn very little money. Mindy, you're you're uh, financially independent. Have you stopped earning income even outside of the Bigger Pockets job?
0: No, I have two full time jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a real estate agent, and in this market, that is a full time job. Yeah, so I'm glad we had this
1: discussion,
0: Scott, when we did you know a while back because it started me thinking. Oh, I'm reducing my taxable income. But I'm only reducing it by $19,000, which, and I know this sounds so snobby and I don't mean it to be, but when you're selling a lot of real estate, you're making obscene money. And when I'm reducing it, it's only by a small amount. So what's the point when I could be making that as a Roth contribution and paying no taxes on it as it grows tax-free for a while? And what really got me thinking about this and saying, well, I have to have Kyle on episode 200 is one of the guys at work is early 20s and we just had this big change to all of our retirement plans and he reached out to me and he said should I choose the Roth or the regular and I'm like huh I don't know Kyle or I don't know uh that was Colin I don't know Colin I'm gonna have to ask Kyle so in the context of a younger person who has so much time maybe he's not even considering early retirement he's just going let's say he makes you know, sub $100,000 a year, not married, no kids. It seems to me that the Roth would almost be the smarter choice because he's got so much time to let it grow. When can I start taking distributions from my Roth 401k tax free, penalty free?
1: Yeah. So I'll back up a little. We'll come back to that. Um, So I should say, I didn't say at the beginning, of course, you know, I, I am a financial professional and what i'm saying here is and i know you guys do a disclaimer which is awesome um but i i don't know everyone's situation so i'm trying to give general advice here so just keep that in mind as this is not specific to someone's situation but someone younger it gets a lot easier to make that roth decision for for sure even if they make a lot of money when they're younger you know if someone comes out they build a business in three years and they're making a lot of money the if you think of paying the taxes when you're that young as an investment itself them investing in paying their taxes ahead of time then boosts the return of that Roth account. So and and you can think of that later in life too, but it's just a lot easier when someone's in their 20s when you have 70 years of life left potentially. Uh, that that really makes a huge difference in what that is. And another thing, as as Scott was talking, you know that formulaic approach that really needs to be taken into account. You, there there are significant savings in our tax system to be able to keep your income below a certain bracket not everyone is doing two or three jobs side hustles you know there's a teacher there's even a doctor you know different pay scales but they do one thing and it's and then they retire and that's it so you, you have to take those variables into account but what i've seen is the roth accounts provide so much flexibility later on so if if you retire and you say i have a couple rental properties i'd really like to buy some more rental properties oh one came up down the street i know this neighborhood that's a smoking deal but I've got to pull $200,000 out of my taxable 401k account. That's going to bump me into a higher bracket. I'm going to have to pay more in health insurance because I'm not to Medicare yet. It just blows things up if you, need, if you want to jump on an opportunity. If you're 60 and you have 200,000 sitting in a Roth, say you have a million sitting in a Roth, but you want to pull 200,000 out to buy a smoking deal on a rental, rental property for passive income and diversification, you can do that. And there's no consequence. You have 200,000 sitting there. You pull it out in one day, you know, have it wired to your bank account. It's done. So that's there. I've seen that a few times where that has over the years made me even more support the Roth accounts because you don't know what comes up later on. And if you have a million dollar dollar K or pre-tax IRA, you don't have a million dollars. You have a million dollars minus tax. What you have in there, you there's a liability built into that account still. And that needs to be mitigated somehow. Um and we can talk about this. I think you we might address RMDs uh in a little bit. So uh required minimum distributions and there's some strategies there. But the Roth account, you know, once you hit fifty nine and a half, four one K Roth IRA, you can pull it out tax free, always, penalty free as well. Before that, the Roth IRA account is is and I've done this personally to buy a rental property with a Roth IRA account. This is I'll get a little bit personal here. So this is what I've done into in a financial planner's uh, portfolio. A little with a Roth IRA account, you can pull out all of your contributions at any time, tax free, penalty free. So if you put in fifty thousand over time, it grows to eighty thousand. You can pull out that fifty without any penalty at any point. You can also pull out eighty thousand as long as you put it back in within sixty days. Once a year, you can do an indirect IRA rollover. So if you need to do something with a rental property and you need to find financing somewhere else you can pull money out put it back in that can be an ira or a roth ira but that is a strategy that can be used those contributions can be pulled out of a roth ira if needed i'll often even have clients that are building emergency funds and not fully funding their roth ira's i will tell them to put that money into their roth ira put it in the cash account at a, at vanguard so it's not going up or down but at least have it in the Roth. So you're taking advantage of those Roth contributions or, or even a little bit more than the cash account. So it's getting some, but they can always pull out. If they put 5,000 in and say over a few years, they have 20,000 in there and that's they want that as emergencies, anything above the 20,000, you invest more aggressively, but the 20,000 originally that you put in, you can keep it really conservatively invested and pull it out whenever you want. But all the interest, all the growth you earn in there is tax-free in the meantime. So that's though every year that you miss contributing to a Roth IRA and a Roth 401k you can never go back and do it again. So you just want to make sure that you're making that decision with your eyes wide open.
2: I think that there's a for me there is a case for why not to contribute to a Roth. And it was in a very brief window of time and it was I am 24 years old and I have the opportunity as a single 24 year old to house hack in a duplex in denver colorado and that is a two or three hundred percent annualized return in average market conditions it was for me with a lot of risk there and that was the only time i did not contribute to the roth ira was when i i felt that my first 20 or so thousand dollars would be put to better use in that and maybe I could have still done it and kept the 8,000 I had left over after the, the purchase in the Roth in my savings account, but that was my emergency reserve, or at least that was how I was thinking about it. But that was the the time when I, when I didn't do that. And from then on, yeah, I think the, the goal is at at 60, 59 and a half 60 to have several million dollars in that Roth if possible, because that's yours. There's no, the government can't take that. There's no taxes. There's no, it's just spendable liquidity.
1: Yeah. I think that's, it's always a trade. You're always weighing trade-offs short-term and long-term, you know, and and in your situation, the trade-off for you to not house hack would have been a bad one. You know, that, that when you're looking at the returns that you can get with a low down payment, you living in the property, paying less for your mortgage, someone else paying your mortgage down. I mean, that, that outweighs the 70 years of tax-free growth in the Roth IRA because real estate has its own tax advantages that you can That you can facilitate and with that type of return that you can get with a primary resident loan on it that makes a huge difference but that's what you you always have to weigh those trade-offs and just make sure that you're very intentional about that instead of just five percent to the pre-tax 401k don't even worry about it how does the math change for you with the match like the 401k matching yep you mean like give me a scenario like the math as far as the priority of what to contribute to or Yeah, I think the traditional, we've talked about this a million
2: times in the podcast, but I want to see, we just way overemphasized the Roth and got a nice little tirade about how wonderful it is. Um, (laughs) But that doesn't eliminate the fact that a 401k match is still free money. And our conventional, I guess, advice that we've talked about on the BP money show here many times is if I get a match, I take the match and then I max the Roth IRA. Is that kind of still how you're thinking about it?
1: Yeah. So a couple pieces there. Usually if you, if you have a Roth 401k available at an employer, usually the match that they have will match. It it will be pre-tax dollars that they do, but you can do your Roth. Say you do 10% and they'll match half of that. So they do five in pre-tax dollars. So you want to do that. You know, if if you're, if your personal choice is, I think the Roth is better. I'd like to do that. You do it in that fashion with your Roth 401k, instead of doing the pre-tax 401k. If you don't have, the option of the Roth 401k, you only have the traditional 401k at your employer, then I usually do. And this is, can be different for people. There's more flexibility with a Roth IRA, but I usually do say, take that match. That's, that's free money. And that's a, you know, even if they match 50% of it, that's an instantaneous 50% return. You know, it's not even annualized return. Like it's like infinite math. It's there right away. So I, I usually do say that. And usually the match isn't, very few employers match a whole lot of 401k so you usually if you're serious about saving for retirement you know your employer might match three to five percent do that and then go to your roth if you're really passionate about the roth again it your situation could be different you could say i want to max out my roth ira's first for the flexibility that they have because i can draw out contributions anytime i want to because i can invest them in other things that my, my employer plan does not offer. There there's other nuances there, but like you said, in general, match probably should take priority. Great. And then, and then there's a growing debate about the HSA
2: in relation to all of these different things. And so I I have the privilege of having, of being able to maximize my Roth 401k and my HSA, but if I
1: had to make a choice between the two, where would you start between the, the two of those? Oh, goodness, man. This is, you're, you're just dialing right in on me. I, it, <laughs> it depends on the situation, but the HSA is very valuable. You know, that, that one you pay no tax at all if you do it right. So that would be my, oh boy. I think I'd still probably do the match because that, that free money that gets in there and gets growing for you, even if it's pre tax, and then your HSA and then the Roth IRA. Again, it depends on your situation. It depends on, it depends on health insurance too. You know, if one spouse has access to the HSA, someone else doesn't, there's some numbers in there that, that it can mess with. But the HSA, that is the account that I see people overlooking the the most, which is unfortunate because it is, it's in a lot of employer plans and a lot of younger people that are healthy. The numbers make more sense for them to pay lower premiums, higher deductibles. If you are smart with your money. Put into that hsa and if you do it right you can get all that money out tax-free and there's a whole debate around taking it out right away when you have medical expenses or saving the receipts and then taking it out later in retirement to do your optimization of tax brackets and things like that that's you know that that you need to read a lot of mad scientist for that and he'll that'll be all outlined for you but that
2: we'll we'll, we'll link to that yeah, this is a whole rabbit hole we could spend the whole yes. hour on this but yeah the, the hsa i want to make sure I, I i love that take the match then the hsa then the Roth after that. And uh hopefully, you know, that matches in your Roth as well there. But I, I think that that's exactly the way I think about it for my personal finances.
0: Yeah, I wanna jump in on the HSA thing just for a minute. So my family is we have the benefit of being very healthy. We go to the doctor very few times a year. And I think that's really important to consider if you have a chronic illness, if you are just Somebody who gets sick frequently, the HSA might not be the best plan for you, especially if you're not making a lot of money right now and you have that high deductible, but we don't use our health care. So there's no reason to have the great policy that we never use when we could have the HSA where we are able to, because we're a family, we're able to save, is it $7,200 in the HSA every year or $7,100? Right. It's, I mean, it's a lot of money.
1: Yeah. It adjusts up a little bit each year. I think it is 71 or 7,200. I'm not sure which one it is right now. If you're married.
0: If you're married in half. Yes. If you're married. If it's it's a family, I think it's cut in half if there's just one of you or two of you. But still, that's a huge, that's more than my Roth IRA right now. So I am maxing that out. And because we're healthy, we're not going to the doctor very frequently. I save my receipts so that my account just continues to grow. And then, when I retire, the first thing I'm going to do is cash in all of my receipts. Again, it's like a prescription here or a you know forty dollar doctor visit there. It's not a hundred thousand dollars in transplant surgery or something because that you know would be a bit a bit more difficult to cash flow. but it's you know it's these little receipts, but they add up, and as soon as I come home, I scan it into the system, I put it into my uh, online folder, so I never lose it, fingers crossed and then my plan is once I stop working, I'm going to be able to just cash in, you know, it's probably $1,000 of receipts right now. But down the road, that'll be, you know, my, my account has grown. And then when I've got fifty, dollars $100,000 in my HSA, pulling out $1,000 is not such a big deal. But when I only have $2,000 in my HSA, pulling out $1,000 is a huge ding to it. So if you can forego withdrawing it, that's the best way to go about it, in my opinion
1: yeah so the hSA with everything there's risk, so with every strategy that you you implement there's risk, and so I just want to point out for people like in your strategy, Mindy, it's the most optimal strategy to let that money stay in there and grow, but you you actually pointed out a risk in there if you lose your receipts at any point, that's going to be a tough one you know you you could get new receipts, which later in life you most likely will have more medical bills, and that'll be fine. you can pull money out that way. The other thing is legislation change could say you can't go back indefinitely 30 years to to use your receipts most likely if something like that happens they'd have a grandfathered period where you could pull everything out in time because there'd be such an uproar but those are those are any time that you can harvest a tax-free gain or guarantee a tax-free gain but choose not to there's a little bit of a risk there so basically if you put money into an hsa and you have a medical expense if you pay that off tax-free with tax-free money you've just you've ensured that that went through tax-free. No risk in the future. It's already done. If you're waiting to optimize that, let the account grow. It's a great strategy, but there you you have a risk of at some point in the future, you, you are not totally realizing the benefit of that account until you do it down the road and something could change. Just for people to keep in mind, a lot of times, I would say 90% of the time, I usually tell people if they're not a financial independence podcast list, listener to just... Pay for your medical expenses out of your HSA. It, you know, the the benefit of the time that you spend tracking the receipts, unless it's something you enjoy doing and you're good at and you you keep track of it, I tell them just pay for it. But I, for Mindy, this is this is what you should do, keep the receipts. But just, just want to make sure people understand that kind of...
0: I will say that those listening are probably really good at the spreadsheets. Everybody we talk to is like, oh, I've got spreadsheets from 1984. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Not me, except
0: Scott. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, let's switch gears then, and let's look at post-retirement. So this, the setup to this question is a bit of uh, a bit of a chore, but just bear with me because it's really good. There's this thing called the Rule of 72, which, in a nutshell, says, assuming a 10% return on your investments, your investment, your nest egg will double every seven years. And of course, past performance is not indicative of future gains or mileage may vary, blah, blah, blah. But if you're 30 years old and you have $1 million, that means at 37, you'll have 2 million, 44, you'll have 4 million, 51, you'll have 8 million, 59, you'll have 16 million and 66, you'll have $32 million. Again, just going by these numbers, you're going to be hit with some pretty hefty RMDs according to current legislation. million is a really nice problem to have, but you started at age 30 with a million dollars. And I hear people saying, oh, well, you're withdrawing it all the time. So we had Michael Kitsis on episode 120, and he shared, uh, we talked some about his amazing article, The Ratcheting Safe Withdrawal Rate, a more dominant version of the 4% rule. And he says that in many cases, the portfolio's are exponentially larger 30 years out than when the person initially retired. So he says, in fact, not only do 90% plus of retirees finish with more than their starting principal after 30 years by following the 4% rule, the typical retiree actually finishes with many multiples of their starting wealth with this spending approach. Over two thirds of the time, the retirees finish with more than double their initial principal, and at, and the median wealth at the end of thirty years is almost two point eight times, and one in six finishes with more than quintuple the initial wealth. So let's talk about RMDs. Let's talk about thinking about them now, because well, I think are, a lot. Are we of done people-
2: now? Didn't we didn't we discuss the Roth? <laughs> Moving moving on, next question.
0: Not everybody's in a Roth. Some of us have some money in a 401k because we didn't have this discussion with Scott 17 years ago when we were first starting to contribute to our 401ks. So, so let's talk about the RMDs. Other than, you know, if you've got your $32 million in your traditional 401k because you hadn't listened to this episode until right now, Scott, <laughs> we're not here to make people feel bad for past mistakes that they've made including me how do you mitigate or reduce your rmds i mean and again totally acknowledging that this is a really great problem to have but i want to pay less tax if possible
2: yeah what we're saying here in some is you're going to be so if you retire with a million or two million by the age of 40 you're going to be so rich By the time you reach traditional retirement age, as long as that balance isn't really declining too much, that you're going to have crazy problems with with, in terms of uh, wealth transfer tax and required minimum distributions, those types of things. So, yeah, I think it's a great thing to noodle on.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I, I tried to make some notes while you're asking that really prolonged question to make sure I try to get in touch at all. <laughs> um, so a couple things to we'll make sure. So the, the Kitsis article versus the rule of 72. So we're kind of talking about two different rates of return there. So the, the, that rule of 72, you're assuming a 10% return, which, you know, if you're in the broad stock market, you're going to get eight to 12%, depending on what time period it in, if you're looking at historical you know, who knows what will happen in the future, but we can only look at what's happened in the past. So that's assuming a 10% return, the withdrawal rate will reduce that. So, you know, if you, if you're doing a 4% withdrawal rate, your return is less than that each year, because you're pulling some out, you're not going to get that doubling as fast. So those numbers will not double quite as quick, but the same principle will still happen. And in his article, even with that 4% withdrawal rate and listeners, if any of you, want to nerd out and you have not read his stuff on 4% rule, you need to read it. I mean, it is top-notch stuff, but that that's a real problem. And when, as financial planners, we run a Monte Carlo analysis for a lot of clients and people to see what's the probability that we can retire with 5,000 a month at this point in the future. And it runs a thousand scenarios and you get this statistical curve and it shows you all these different scenarios, but what happens is we run it so conservatively because people just want to make sure they're guaranteed that they're going to be retired or be able to retire. And that's what the 4% rule came from. The research behind it was run so tightly that we want to find that rate that people can feel really comfortable retiring at. But when you do that, it turns out that most people just end up with a lot of money. So there's several ways to mitigate that. And you know, to anyone who has a lot in a pre-tax account, Good job. You know, there's definitely nothing wrong with that. The Roth IRAs weren't available until sometime in the 90s. I can't remember. And the Roth 401ks were not even available until later. So you actually can't have to contribute to those accounts for that long of a period of time unless you start to do some conversions and really build those accounts up. But the biggest thing to do is try to have tax diversification. We already talked about HSAs. We have pre-tax accounts and Roth IRAs. If you can have all of these different pieces, when you do start taking income to try to pay as little tax as possible, you can fill up tax brackets with certain amounts of income. You know, fill up the first eighty thousand in taxable income with your taxable amount, so you're in the low bracket uh, for or your pre-tax accounts where it's all taxed. And if you need more, pull some out of your Roth or your HSA. So you want to have those different accounts. It doesn't. It's not bad to have these pre-tax accounts where you paid less tax or you defer the tax while you were working when you're in a 30% bracket, say federal and state, and then you're not working and you can take it out at 15 or 20%. That's a real thing. That's, that's definitely worth it. Uh, but so that tax diversification is huge. The other thing is you really got to think about what your goal is for the money. So So people really need to think about, okay, I'm laser focused on financial independence in the next five years or in the next 10 years. But what happens when I have quintuple the amount of assets or even double the amount of assets that I need at age 70? So at age 70, you're getting close to the the RMD age, the required minimum distribution. They upped it to age 72. So age 72 is when you have to start taking a percentage out of those pre-tax accounts. There's a percentage calculated on your life expectancy. You got to take it out. You pay tax on the full amount. It's a little over 3% in the first year of the account balance that the balance of the account was on December 31st of the prior year. That's how they calculate it. And each year you get a new calculation. So you need to think about the amount of income you need, but what are your other goals? Are you charitably inclined? Do you have lots of kids? You want to give them a bunch of money? Do you have lots of kids? You want to give them no money? You want their last check to balance? Like these are things that you have to think through and you can make decisions now, whether you're 60, 50, 40, 30 years old that affect that. So if you... I work with a lot of clients that are more giving-minded. So if your goal is to be able to give charitably to your church, uh, tithing, things like that, where anything where there's a, a 501c3 involved, at age 70 and a half, you can do what's called a qualified charitable distribution. So as soon as you turn age 70 and a half, I have clients right away, you do all of your giving to charities from an IRA. And the reason for that is you put the money in tax, pre-tax, it grew tax deferred. And if you send it straight out of your IRA account, can't come to you in the, in the mail and, or into your bank account has to go straight to the charity. If it goes straight to the charity, it's tax-free distribution, which is just wonderful. And you can do, I think the limit is a hundred thousand a year that you can do right now. So if you are very charitably inclined and you have, say, say for example, you have five rental properties and you have a Roth IRA balance and you have an HSA balance and you have a little tiny pension. And then you have a million dollar 401k balance. So we're talking about someone who's done fairly well, saved pretty well. You're not going to need that 401k balance. Most likely, most likely by the time you stop working, those other assets will cover you and you can get money out of those very tax efficiently. You could probably, if you're giving inclined, you could probably eliminate your entire 401k balance over the rest of your life and have a lot of fun doing it and have a lot of impact on your community people around you by using that account and and not have the government get any of it and have the charities get all of it so there's there's some real that's a wonder that's the best way that i know of to get rid of that account or to reduce that required minimum distribution and that qualifies for the minimum distribution so if you have to take thirty five thousand out of that account because that's your required minimum distribution you can send that to your local community center your the red cross and that takes care of it for the year. Next year, same thing, or another place, or split it between a few. Um, but that's that's one of the most wonderful ways that I see clients doing that, that i have done a good job saving. And boy, it's a lot of fun when someone has saved so well and have felt like they can't give, and all of a sudden, they have more than they know what to do with, and they can just write checks and make a big, big difference.
0: Okay. Several questions about that. You, you threw out the $100,000 limit. Is that per year or per donation
1: per year okay per year
0: and that is let's see that's tax oh rmd taxes if i were to take that 100,000 as my rmd i would pay taxes on that
1: yeah so say say you lived in oregon where i live and you're in the a twenty-two percent tax bracket. So you take that hundred thousand dollars out, you pay twenty-two thousand federally, and then you pay another nine point nine Oregon. So you're paying thirty-one percent in taxes on that hundred thousand. So you're you're getting sixty-nine thousand dollars of that hundred thousand. If you instead have other income that you can live on, and you're giving inclined anyways, I'm not saying to give away money so that you become destitute and don't have retirement funds. But if you're giving inclined anyways. Do not give from your Roth IRA account. Do not give from your checking account, unless it's to a person or a, not a charity. But if it's a charity, have that 100,000 sent directly to the charity. It all goes to the charity. Zero tax, gone.
2: This is awesome. And I'll state it arrogantly. This is a much more likely problem for most people who are achieving FIRE than running out of money, I believe, given the way we've we've built all, all this stuff up. The 4% rule. You talk about how conservative the 4% rule is. The 4% rule is literally the inverse of it is 25 times your savings. Of course, 25 times your savings is going to last 30 or more years in most scenarios if you eke out even a little bit of return, right? And we've already had this discussion a million times, but we'll go over a few points in case it's the first time you're listening to this discussion, but the 4% rule of retirement also assumes things like you never earn another dollar from any other activities. You never get social security. You have no pension. You have no, your spending stays perfectly flat and does not change in the event that you have a bad year um, with your investments. It assumes you have no cash cushion, like no six months to 12 months or two year emergency reserve. It assumes you have no rental properties, all that kind of stuff. So you you have a much higher probability in my mind of having way too much money at the end of your life than not having enough, according to the, the 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 principles that we discuss here with this. And what a great solution! You're gonna have to figure out a way to give it away versus giving it to Uncle Sam. Um, so I think that that's awesome and a great a great approach. That said, I do want to get one little snarky comment in here and. You don't have to play the game of giving away a hundred thousand out of your 401k and not avoiding paying tax to uncle Sam. If the money's in a Roth, because you, you could just pay, give the money away yes. Yes. <laughs> if it's in the Roth, uh, <laughs> and yes. it's the same, same deal.
1: <laughs> so that's exactly just, right. Just a little, uh, little, little starkey side comment there to, to add into the discussion. That is true. But you also would have paid t- if you know, you're going to give anyways, you would have paid tax for the privilege that's of that Roth earlier. So if you know you're going to be giving inclined so i'll i'll go personally for me again here so i have some rental properties i have a business and i have retirement accounts and i have basically my pre-tax retirements and i have a solo 401k and this is something i advise for a lot of clients and we can talk about that type of account too which it's amazing but basically the pre-tax money that me and my wife are saving at some point in the down down the road I just want to be a guy writing checks. Like that that's all I want to do. I don't we don't live on very much, we don't need very much to live on. So that type of thing, if you know you're going to do that, it can help you now. Those pre-tax accounts are valuable now. So reduce your tax now, save it and then there's that much more in there growing for these charities that you have in mind down the road. But you don't have the flexibility that you would with a Roth, but I guess my solution, the optimal way would be to have Roth and have pre-tax accounts because then if you want to give money to your neighbor That lives across the street that their water heater went out and they have no money to take care of it you can do something like that or if you know something bigger you know if you want to give someone twenty thousand dollars and not have a tax consequence a person is not a 501c3 you can't deduct that on your taxes so you wouldn't get that qualified charitable distribution but with a roth type of account you could do that so having both of them is the probably the best way to go for that flexibility
2: When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets,
0: Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com.
2: NerdWallet, finance smarter.
0: As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. You're trying to save, trying to invest, but your bank account is stuck. How about we get rid of some of those unused subscriptions you forgot about? Trust me, with Rocket Money, it's easy. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Take control over your subscriptions and cancel your unused ones with just a few taps. Create a custom budget, view spending habits and let Rocket Money negotiate to lower your bills for you. minimum balance to open, maintain membership savings account, and to obtain bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for more terms and conditions.
3: This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business,
0: Okay, you mentioned the solo 401k and I want to talk about that, but I just want to quote Michael Kitsis one more time from this article, which is, yeah, if you want to nerd out, go to nerdsiview.com and just read everything because Michael Kitsis does, just assume that all the math is done correctly because it is, and he does all the math for you. I think he really just loves doing all of this. Like every scenario is right there and it's so great. But he says in this article... In only twelve of the one hundred and fifteen rolling thirty-year time periods, did the retiree finish with anything less than the original principal. Only twelve of a hundred and fifteen. That is kind of really amazing. I don't even know what percentage that is. Like,
1: and that's not even zero. You know, that's just less than what you started with. So you, yeah, you're oh, still fine. You know, like that still means. People would be fine with that. Most people would be, you know, if I have a million dollars when I retire or $2 million when I retire, if I end with zero, but I can live the life that I want to through retirement, that's fine. And that's a much rarer scenario than that 12.
0: Yeah. And I believe that was one, one time out of 115, it went, and it was like they retired at the end of the 60s, followed by a huge period of inflation in the early 70s. And in that one time, They dipped below zero when he did the math.
2: Yeah. If you want to hear Mindy and I in violent agreement with Michael, uh, you can listen (laughs) to uh, Bigger Pockets Money podcast, episode 120, where he was a guest with us. That was a fun one.
0: That was a really fun episode. Uh, Okay. Since you brought up the self-directed, okay. Did you bring up self-directed solo 401k or just self-directed?
1: Just solo 401k. So there's, yeah, I'll, I'll define some terms, I guess that that would be good. So a solo 401k is the retirement vehicle, just like an IRA, just like a 401k, just like a Roth IRA, a self-directed IRA, Roth IRA, or solo 401k is one that you, you use kind of an alternative custodian to be able to hold real estate or something fancier or non-typical paper asset like stocks or bonds in that's not i won't go into that there's just so many tax issues that you really if you go self-directed with accounts you really need to know what you're doing or talk to a tax professional that can kind of let you know of the tax issues that could potentially come down the road because if you use loans and there's there's just different things you need to be aware of the solo 401k is just a simple 401k account that a self-employed individual can set up and you can't have any employees. It has to be just you. It can be you and your spouse, which is actually, it's probably the most optimal way to do it because you can do just an amazing amount of contribution. So you can, for a solo 401k, instead of having, so if you're self-employed and you do, you don't have a 401k, like you would at a normal employer, you can do your IRA, your Roth IRA, 6,000 a year, you, your spouse, that's it. Uh, 7,000 if you're over age 50. Solo 401k, depending on how much you make, you can put up to 57,000 a year into the account. So you can do as you're, you're the employer and the employee. So to try to keep it as simple as possible, you as the employee can put, a, put in the maximum 19,500 a year, but then you as the employer can match up to 25% of your salary into that account up to a total amount of the two. To be fifty-seven thousand. now there's some other calculations depending on your structure if you're an s corp or if you're a sole proprietor this is something that you'd want your tax preparer to just run a calculation for you and say how much can i contribute to my solo 401k when do i have to have it contributed by because there's different deadlines depending on your entity structure but this is something that if if you do a side hustle or uh, you know if you're a real estate professional depending on the structure of the the work that you're doing and the income that you're making. Many people miss out on this and you can do a Roth solo 401k. So you do 19,500 in Roth contributions. The match is pre-tax. You can match that, but that has to be pre-tax. But it's a huge accelerator of retirement account. If you are self-employed, you have complete autonomy on how much you make, how much you pay yourself, how much you contribute to this account. It's if you start a business on your own and it really takes off, this is an account that you do not want to neglect looking at
2: can you do this in addition to working for an employer so for, for example mindy is both a bigger pockets employee and a real estate broker so can can she set that up for both business for, for the
1: second business and contribute to both and how does that math work she can the math is still fifty seven thousand total over all the accounts so if you had five and does that, that include that the hsa working, no it does not include the hsa the HSA, the H you can only have one HSA though. You can't have an HSA at five different employers. So I'm, I'm going extreme. So I'll say five different employers. It, you can only do 19,500 in individual contributions as salary deferral from your paycheck. Uh, that's 26,000 if you're age 50 or older. And then 57,000 is the max that you can do of those, of everything combined at your five different employees between or employers between your contributions and your employer contributions. So if you work somewhere that you work for someone and you're getting a match, you're getting some of your own contributions in there. You need to take that into account to what you do on your own side business. But no, it's not. You can do both of them. You just can't do 57000 57000 You know, you can't do one for each uh, different employer. So if I have a
2: cool like $120,000 just lying around after all my expenses every year, I can put 7600 7200 into the hsa and then i can put in 57 and a half and then my spouse can also put in 57 and a half across these things if i do it right and meet meet all the dot all the i's and cross all the t's across these different ventures
1: yes your spouse has to work in the business so it's not just like the roth ira or the ira where you can contribute to it if they're not working so and that would be something that you would want to make sure that you can prove you don't want to just say, oh, she does my bookkeeping or he does my bookkeeping. And, you know, it's they write a check or something. like you need to actually have something that shows that you can pay them fifty thousand dollars and they can contribute a certain amount to the account. But yes. So if you have you have a, say you have a couple that's fairly successful and they run the business together and it's just the two of them, which is. You know, more and more, especially with this last year with COVID, a lot of working from home, a lot of businesses, a lot of overhead has been eliminated. This type of scenario is is very common, or becoming more common, I should say, to be able to have an, a business that is growing and be able to contribute a lot to it. So it's you definitely there are things that you need to be aware of. It's a little bit. Of a unique account that has to have a plan document, but usually you can go to a custodian like Fidelity, an investment company, and they have a boilerplate one. So it's really not something to be intimidated about. But it's you at least just need to know that you should check into it. And a lot of times you'll find that you have to ac- actually push a tax preparer to make sure that they know what you're talking about, because a lot of them will instantly recommend a SEP IRA for a self-employed individual, which is another. Type of IRA where you can contribute a little bit more than an IRA, but it's nothing compared to a solo 401k. If you really want to get serious about uh, socking stuff away, so you just want to make sure that you're having. I just had this conversation uh, on Saturday today, Happy Tax Day, everyone. Uh, as we're recording this, I know this is going to come out later, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, where we had to make sure the tax preparer they put a SEP IRA on the tax return and said no, this we want a solo 401k, and it went from a. 16,000 and change contribution to a $42,000 contribution that we were able to do. Uh, so that's, you just want to make sure that you ask about it and then you'll be able to, you should be able to be directed either by a financial planner or a tax preparer into how you, and how much and what you need to do to make it happen.
2: So this is how you contribute a hundred thousand dollars a year to a qualified charity at retirement and to your neighbor's cat's surgery as well with <laughs> the, the tax optimized giving strategy for both. Yes. Yes. So
0: I just have one thing to point out because um I don't know that people are thinking about this but the 19,500 that you contribute as your personal contribution is also income that you have to earn. You have to earn the 195 in order to yes. contribute it. But 25% of that is 4875. So, you can kind of automatically contribute $24,375 to your 401k just by maxing it out and earning that income through your self directed. So, your minimum kind of goes up. And that's even before the age 50 bonus contribution. So, that's just another way to think of that as well. My husband and I have a self directed solo 401k because we want to do real estate in it. And that's what we do. And I max out. We max out his contributions first because he's retired and doesn't have another job, and then we max out mine if we can, and if not, then I've got bigger pockets to put into or contribute to the their 401k, which is a nice problem to have.
1: Yeah. So you brought that's a very good point. So just to paint like a real simple scenario, say say you work at a job and you make eighty thousand a year, but then you have a and you do a little bit of contribution. Say you do no contributions to their 401k plan. We'll keep it real easy. But you have a side hustle where you make 25000 a year. Not nearly as much, but you can basically put away that 25000 entirely into your solo 401k. Real roughly. You know, you're 19500 in income and another, whatever you said, you did the calculation, 4000 in and change on top of that as that 25% employer match. So you can basically, if you're doing this side hustle and you really that's meant to help you save for retirement with a solo 401k. You can just scoot all of that money, not spend any of it, even though you're only making 25,000 a year at it, which I say only, that's a, that's a big deal, but compared to a full-time job, it's, it's on the smaller end, but you'd be able to throw it all into the solo, solo 401k. That's the power of the solo 401k. You can do so much. Despite, you don't you don't have to make a hundred to 200,000 a year to put a lot into it. If it's, especially if it's a side gig,
0: yeah, it's 25% of your income that your company can match. So that's yep. all tax-free and that's just a bigger contribution to my retirement account.
1: Yeah. And and again, make sure you have a tax preparer calculate that for you because there is a different calculation for a sole proprietor versus something like an S-corp. So the sole proprietorship, it's it's kind of wonky. It's like a calculation of between 20 and 25% because you have to back out self-employment taxes and do kind of some weird things there. But the general idea is it's about 25% of a match.
0: Yeah, I do want to underline that tax preparer thing. And in this instance, a tax preparer is not your local H&R Block guy that you walk or girl that you walk into and say, hey, let's do taxes. This is somebody that you are paying a nice amount of money to, for their tax expertise, you do not want to cheap out on this particular one. You don't have to see them every single year and have them recalculate all this stuff, and you know rack up ten thousand dollars in tax preparer bills every year. But it's definitely worth paying for.
2: All right, I, I have a um, hard pivot and change a question here. So this is, I think, the third theme of, of the show here, but that I want to get into. But and it's a whopper, Kyle. Stocks are very high right now. Real estate prices are going up like 20, 24% year over year. It, and we think inflation is coming, so I can't st- st- stick money into my savings account. Otherwise, it's, the dollar is going to lose value. Do I invest in crypto? Do I invest in wood or other commodities since they're shoot, shooting up? Bond yields are at historic lows. Um, do I invest in debt? Where, where which asset class? How do I think about asset classes in a general sense? Right now, in
1: 2021, man, these are hard questions. Come on, <laughs> softballs, <laughs> softballs. um So, I'm glad you asked it. I, actually, I have written down here inflation discussion because it's it's a real a real thing that we we need to consider now, and for people thinking about their retirement and any financial planning in general. So, basically, for for the last three to five years, there have been a lot of people saying you know or actually since since the great recession when a lot of money printing first happened there have been a lot of calls for inflation from conspiracy theorists to normal people you know like there's just people across the board have said there's money printing we'll probably see inflation we haven't seen it for so long but we're actually starting to see it finally and it's not not surprising with the volume of money printing compared to to the volume of the money supply but so so during that time i i'm a junkie for reading like historical financial books and i like reading about like zimbabwe had a major hyperinflation crisis germany had one in the past there's several countries that have had that we've this this tape has played out before and basically what happens is the people that own assets survive and do okay if and and we're talking extreme scenario like super high inflation um the people that hold cash lose um and that's a very oversimplification of it so i'll kind of maybe break it down a little bit the people that hold assets and by assets i mean good assets not something that not only holds value but also produces income in the meantime so that can be stocks in your portfolio that can be rental real estate Uh, that's that i'm not including gold in that or precious metals i would say those are good for a portfolio especially if it helps you sleep good at night but it's also a store of value you know it's something that as inflation goes up, most likely gold and silver will go up in the dollar amount that it takes to buy them. They don't go up in value. They go up in dollar pricing. They, they hold the same value, just like a lot of assets. Whereas something like real estate, and I, I love, love that this is bigger pockets because I can emphasize real estate a little bit more, but that goes up in value, but you can also force value in it. You have a little bit of control there and you can also reinvest dividend or rental income into it to help force some of that. So that, that, that's the mitigation strategy. Oh, go ahead. Would you lump into that precious metals discussion, crypto, and specifically like a Bitcoin? I would, I would not lump it into the same one, but it, it would be another, I would say it would be another good diversification piece, especially in the digital economy that we live in that the problem, and I am not a lot of financial planners are very much against crypto. I'm not completely against crypto. I'm very cautious on crypto. And it, we, it's, this is an interesting time because everything is doing well. You know, real estate, stocks, crypto is just, you know, if you follow Dogecoin, my goodness, you know, or Elon Musk and what he says about I mean, what's it up? 24,000% in, in 2021. And this is not a recommendation. Now, I don't want everyone after this podcast to go out and it buy Dogecoin. It started off
0: as a joke.
1: Yeah. So, so... You just have to keep that in mind. And these things have happened before, you know, and everyone talks about the tulips, you know, that people were buying and arbitraging tulips. And so there, these things happen and they go up, but we do live in a time where digital transfer of property, digital, uh, blockchain, you know, and and I'm not an expert on this stuff for sure, but this is becoming a reality. So holding some of that is could be a good idea i'm not going to say that you need to hold it i don't think i would go that far uh to say that but i personally i own a little bit but it's mostly so that i can talk about it decently and and uh walk people off the ledge when they want to throw their whole life savings into it uh but i would say it's different than gold or silver because the biggest risk that i see with cryptocurrency is that it goes against sovereign nation's money supply and all a government has to do is say we outlaw crypto because it no longer allows us to inflate our currency to allow us to keep the monetary policy where we want it like our federal reserve every country has a, a central the bank crypto fans much. are
2: screaming at their their yeah, car yeah, yes. radios now saying that's exactly right uh that's the whole point so yes uh, of, of the, it's of true it, yeah.
1: and that's you yeah. know and if you but if you can It then becomes a black market which becomes a whole nother thing but you know gold was outlawed in the 30s i can't remember and then it didn't you know we couldn't own it for a couple decades so there's some of those things where it's kind of a personal choice and some people would say you know you should just buy guns you know guns would be they're going to hold value and they go up or precious metals guns lumber you know plant a plant a timber forest there's all these different things that you can do so basically now i'm kind of going on a tangent i'll try to back it up a little bit Basically, 21 money grows on trees. Oh, yes, it does. <laughs> so, so, okay. So that's a good segue. So right now people are awash in cash in, in many ways. People that have done well at saving have put themselves in a good financial place. A lot of people are definitely hurting, but a lot of people that have investment accounts or some real estate are doing well. What people need to think about right now is what should I do now to make sure that if things change. I I have some stability. So this last year is a good lesson in the reason to have cash, you know, despite inflation, having cash, you know, March last year, I didn't know if I was going to get rent payments for six months or more, you know, on, on rental properties. So having cash, even though you're going to lose value to inflation, you still need to have it. And you just, that's just a risk that you need to be okay with. If you hold six months to a year in cash reserves, and you know that that's going to be worth 5% 5% less at the end of the year, 10% less at the end of the year because of inflation. That's okay if you have other assets that are appreciating in the meantime. That's your hedge to be able to make mortgage payments, to be able to make house payments, to be able to pay for food if you lose your job. Like that that's that's the risk you're mitigating. I can't give the advice of what you should do. I would say with inflation looking like it's going to happen that Roth accounts get more valuable because they they inflate the assets inside them tax-free and assets that are real, which means real estate gold. I would maybe say crypto in there. Maybe I I don't know that. And I'm just, I'm in two camps here. Some people are going to love me and some people are going to hate me. I don't know that I would call it a real asset yet. I I think it's got some way, a ways to go. Some people
2: currency, right? It's a currency like gold was like gold, Bitcoin dollars, euros, you know, yen, they're, 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 currencies, right? So that's
1: the, yeah. I, yeah. That's what, so I guess maybe, maybe I rephrase that. I wouldn't necessarily call it a good store of value yet. If we compare it to gold or something to store the value against inflation, it could be, but that, that's why you diversify. Um, I'm, I'm more partial to things that you can force the appreciation on, you know, like passive investing in the stock market. You can't force the appreciation, but you can, you can make good tax decisions there, but in real estate, you can force you can put your, your sweat into it and you can find deals, you can, uh, make improvements. So being able to do the, to do that is, is a good thing. And, you know, having, having control of your own income, this is something that maybe doesn't get talked about as much. And even in the retirement planning in the later years having a side business that you can fall to if you lose your job, you know, like if you have your own business and you work with 20 clients, your graphic designer or financial planner, or whatever you do, you have 20 employers, three of them could fire you and you still have 17. If you, you work for a company, you have one employer, they fire you, you have zero income. And if you're in the fi community and you have your own business and you have 20 clients, and if you're, you follow the five principles, you're basically, you're probably living on the income of 10 or 12 clients. So the eight is extra. So if you you lose eight clients, you're still in the same position. So that's another way that people could mitigate risk. If you can, and and I would say real estate rentals would qualify as a side business. Your stock portfolio starts to qualify as a side business because it starts creating its own income, but any other way you can add value and in retirement, you talk about a way to make sure your retirement portfolio lasts for you or uh you don't outlive it if you just work five hours a week in retirement to bring in a little bit of income it's amazing what a part-time job will do to the numbers that you don't have to take out of a retirement account uh to keep you afloat and it also gives you something to do I mean if you if you're a halfway motivated person that saved well for retirement You're not going to want to just stop and do nothing completely. Hopefully during that time, you spent the time to try to find something that's enjoyable to still add value to people uh, and society. Um, That's my little soapbox. I'll step down now.
0: Okay. You brought up crypto. Scott brought up crypto and you didn't immediately say, what a horrible investment. Never, ever, 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 ever buy it ever. I am not a fan of crypto, but it's also because I don't understand it. I'm not asking people to send me a letter telling me all about it. I don't really want to understand it, but <laughs> I can also identify with people who are watching Dogecoin go from a complete joke to what is it like 60 cents a coin or something? Or like, it. what did you say? 600% appreciation. And you feel like you're missing out on something. If I was not in debt and was wanting to, test the waters on crypto, as a financial planner, what sort of percentage of my nest egg would you suggest testing in crypto? Because my pat answer is just only, in, only buy however much you want to lose completely.
1: That's a good answer. I would say that the stage that cryptocurrency is right now, it's not old enough to think of it as a good store of value, as a good asset allocation for your portfolio. For me, the best thing that can happen to people when they try to start investing in single stocks to try to do stock picking or invest in currency, the best thing, and this is, this is kind of mean to say, but what I would love to happen is for them to lose 50% of their money right away because it gives people the emotional anchor to say, this is a real thing that I don't have control over. The, the, the worst thing that can happen is you invest in Dogecoin at 0.002% and it goes to 50 cents. And you think, wow, I'm a genius. You know, I, I I've got two hundred thousand dollars from my two thousand dollars, and now I'll invest in three more other cryptocurrencies, and now I would lose it all. So, so I would say your answer is spot on. Only invest what you want to want to lose as a percentage. That's really hard. It, it just depends on, you know, a lot of people have like a an investment portfolio, but a lot of people have pensions or things, so it's hard to. I would say you know no more than 1%. I mean, you know, if you have $100,000, don't put more than $1,000 in it. I I mean, literally only the amount that you you won't feel if it's gone. And here so maybe here's the case for it. If you put $1,000 in and you pick the next Dogecoin, great. You're going to you're going to do well. You might regret not putting your whole $100,000 in, but that's like winning the lottery, you know, one in 350 million. I it's, I just I want to make sure, you know, and I'm kind of thinking maybe I should have come down more on cryptocurrency, but I just, it's not something that is going away in some form or fashion from what I've been seeing. And from what I've been reading, I, I really question, and this is Ray Dalio and Warren Buffett and some of these large hedge fund manager managers that have seen cycles for years and have studied history. A lot of them are saying the government has the ultimate control, you know, governments have the tax control. They have the military control. Like we live under the government of where we live. And if a cryptocurrency gets out of hand, we're already seeing it with China a little bit. If it gets out of hand to where everyone's flowing out of the US dollar into a currency and they can no longer manipulate or help the economy in the way that they want to, they're going to say no more Bitcoin, you know, they're going to say, or only for these transactions. And it, it's just, it's not, it, it's kind of a fact. It, it, I would be very surprised if, if everyone just kind of went from the dollar to Bitcoin, it, it's basically, it can't be done. The U S wouldn't let it happen because they'd go bankrupt.
2: <laughs> Moving on from the uh, Bitcoin and crypto di- discussion here. You, we, we just talked about inflation and you, your answer was, in an inflationary environment, which which tentatively looks like what is happening currently and may happen in the future, um, real assets, stocks, real estate, things you can touch, things you can hold, things that that um, have real value with these types with these types of things, commodities, things where the supply is limited, um, the crypto, Bitcoin people will argue the Bitcoin supply is, is limited. Th- those kinds of things tend to do well, and. My, my kind of big next question is, if we think we're in an inflationary environment and all these asset classes are reasonably high, but that they're going to go much higher, they're going to inflate uh, in this environment, is the answer not to take out a tremendous amount of debt and put it at, on a fixed 30-year term on things like real estate and those types of things? Is that not the logical next step and answer in managing your portfolio, as scary as that sounds?
1: mm-hmm yeah it's very encounter very counterintuitive to how a lot of personal finance has been taught but we we do live in a debt-driven economy now it's kind of bit, uh, somebody i read a book and someone used the term instead of capitalist it was like debtalist or something something like that but basically the way the economy functions credit forces a lot of things you you anytime you take out debt, you gain risk because there's a liability of you to pay that back. So you take that 30 year mortgage out, you gotta have the cash flow to pay that back. However, if someone is has good cash reserves to cover payments for an amount of time for unsuspected things that would happen, like a pandemic, uh something like taking out a 30 year mortgage at 3% is a very good financial move. I, I think we will not see rates like this in the future. I, I, just think we're kind of at an inflection point and I'm, I, I hesitate because I'm getting into my personal opinion and, and what I think is going to maybe happen, but if you look at what, where we're at now and making good financial decisions, what you, what you're talking about taking on long-term debt at historically low rates is a good financial move. If you have the cash reserves to cover unforeseen events, you don't want to over leverage yourself. That's just not smart. But if you have, I, I would say right now, it's less important to pay off your mortgage. I would say there's you should be you can consider that in some in some ways. And you actually, I listened to an episode that you guys just did recently with someone who had a pension that was affected by earning income and paying off a mortgage may be a good route for them. So there are instances that it really that can make sense. But I think you're spot on, Scott. I think debt is cheap right now, and the because the U.S. government has debt itself, it's in the U.S. government and other governments. I'm not. I shouldn't even uh, single out the U.S. It's in their interest to inflate the currency because it makes it easier for them to pay off their own debt. Any country, and we can ride that wave if we have good long-term fixed debt, because then you're on the side of the policymakers that are that are kind of pushing the same agenda uh, as as the de- increase increasing the debt or in- increasing the inflation to be able to reduce. The value of the debt
2: yeah i I think that's that's terrifying to to take this to logical conclusion the conclusion on a personal finance podcast but that that there's no escaping where that next step goes right if you can capitalize and feel like you you can manage not to go bankrupt then and you believe yields are low at historical lows and inflation is coming then the answer is blindingly obvious it's take out as much 30-year Fixed rate debt as you can, and back it with real assets and cash flow that can sustain it. And now you're borrowing with dollars that are expensive today, and paying them back with dollars that are cheap later. And as interest rates yeah. rise, the equity value of that debt declines. Um, that's another topic we can get into a whole another show on the yeah. inverse relationship between interest rate and bond equity value. But that's the that's the math, right? And so that's something to think about. We'll, we'll let everybody just kind of leave it there, I guess. And, and think about right. it, uh, as we say, again, to the, the end of the show here, but that's well, maybe, terrifying one last, and interesting.
1: Yeah. One last thing on that, maybe a, a caution for people that have pensions as a large part of their retirement, um, or even social security as a large part of their retirement. Those are wonderful things to have. I mean, I, there aren't many people that have many more and they really help, but that, that, those are things that get Hit pretty hard by inflation historically, the other countries that have gone through um, not even hyperinflation, just higher inflation. Uh, you know the the inflationary cost of living increase that's done on social Security, they come out with it every year. It never feels like the right amount for retirees. It always feels low. And that's a way that they can mitigate the overfunding or the underfunding of social security. And with pensions, you know, if you have a pension that is based on a fixed dollar amount, And you get 10, 20 years into your retirement, that's going to feel like a lot less if we have four to 10% inflation or, you know, the seven, the seventies, eighties, you have in the teens to 20% inflation. It's not, we've had so low inflation for so long. We kind of forget that it can happen. Um, and it might not, you know, it definitely might not, but we just have to, like you said, you got to do the math and think about what would happen in that case. So a lot of people think in in a time like this, things might crash. You know, I should pull everything out of the stock market because everything's so high. But you just got to be careful with that because if you want to hedge against inflation, you need to have something that inflates over time and stocks do that. That's real estate does too, but you know, just your stock portfolio, because prices go up, uh, other smart investors try to plow their cash into companies that have goods that they can raise the price on, you know, so Netflix can bump their monthly thing up by $2 a month. People don't care. They pay $2 a month, but they just increase their revenue by 10%. That's inflation, and you want to be able to ride that somehow. If you pull everything out and put it in cash, um, I'm just having a conversation with a client tomorrow in a meeting, and that's what they want to do. And I have to try to talk them talk them down from that. And it's, it's a hard thing to to wrap your mind around. You just want to make sure that you you realize that if you don't, if you're not invested in something, it, it, you're going to be hurt in the in the long run.
0: Well, look back at March, uh, March 2020. It was riding high, and then it you know crashed. But then what was it? Two months later, it was back up almost to the same high that it was in February, I think was the absolute highest. Um, We talked to the mad scientist right after that big crash. And he said, you know, I thought that I was going to be able to just ride this out. But this really freaked me out seeing such Mm -hmm. a dramatic drop so quickly. So I'm going to reevaluate how much I'm in stocks and bonds but I'm not going to pull everything out. He was just going to reevaluate his asset allocation. And, you know, I think that is a really great little tight time window. Look, if you were up here in February and you thought, oh, it's so high, I should pull everything out. You missed the drop. Sure. But then you also missed the growth again. And what are we at now? I don't know. Uh, I don't pay as close attention to the stock market as my husband does, he gets up every morning and reads all the numbers. And cause I'm not taking my money out right now. So it doesn't really matter what it's doing right now, you know? Um, but I mean, I get, I get what he's saying that he wants to miss the, the big drop, but when is it going to drop? What day is it going to drop? I want to know so I can pull it out. I made the, the spectacular, uh, uh, prediction that it would drop on March 14th, and I think it dropped on the 13th because I forgot about the leap year. Um, but then, yeah, I, I was I was actually just guessing. I don't know if you guys could tell when you were listening to that episode. Uh, I was completely guessing, but I called it spot on. So if he knows, you know, I'd love to know what day it is because then I'll pull my money out, wait till it drops, and then put it all back in. But until then, yeah, it just goes up and down and.
2: So Kyle, that's perfect segue to that. That's exactly what you do with your personal money, right? You, you put it, you, you know, look for highs and lows. You sell high, buy low um, on a regular, repeated basis. All the time.
1: Yeah. That's I'm just no problem. Yeah. Where,
2: where where are you investing your money and we don't have to get specifics just in a, in a kind of general ballpark and across which asset, asset classes, maybe a glimpse into your strategy.
1: Yeah. So I, I, basically what we've been talking about, we have Roth IRAs. I have a solo 401k, um, and it's long-term aggressive high stock portfolio. Um, I, I, for me personally, I believe in a basically perpetual portfolio. I I don't want to ever reduce the risk on my portfolio. I want it to be something that I pass on as a giving organization to my kids. Um, so it's, it's going to be. i'm not i don't plan to ever back even when i'm 70 years old i'm just going to keep letting it ride because i I, the discussion that we've had so far i think the dollar amount will be at a point where there's no there's no reason to do that even if the market drops by an incredible amount why would i dial it back if my lifestyle is super small compared to to the portfolio so so from an investing standpoint you know i'm a little and this is not advice for anybody for me personally, I am I'm more heavy small stocks because historically they have done well. They've done better in the long run. You have to stay in them for at least 20 to 30 year time frames to benefit from that, but when I I think of my portfolio as an endowment portfolio that that should live forever and that's how I invest it. And then so so I do I do investments in retirement accounts for a lot of for the tax advantage purposes, the Roth IRA, the Future qualified charitable giving, so I I try to uh, max those out so that we can do that. Um, but the wealth building is real estate for me. We we have rental properties um, in and again I, in Ohio and, and Florida. And these are not recommendations of where you should go um, to invest in properties. But um, I think I think real estate and that comes from personal experience working with clients. Honestly, when I look at clients that have built good wealth over the time, over a long period of timeframe. Um, a lot of them, it's real estate, uh, some have done it in investments and that's becoming more popular with the Phi movement. But when I look at clients that right now are in their fifties, sixties and seventies that have substantial wealth, it's well-placed real estate investments and where they forced equity on it. Uh, and, and that's what I, you know, I want to, I want to teach my kids that, that that's kind of the idea behind that in the long run I want I want them to be able to do whatever they'd like to do from a work standpoint but from a financial standpoint I think some of these little investments on the side like a couple real estate properties and you're set you don't have to make that much money you just let it get paid off and and you're done for for retirement um a lot of people real estate is too much work and too you need to really learn and know the market know what you're doing um but for me personally I love it and and but I do the I do kind of across the board and I have I think I have four or five thousand dollars in crypto, um, which, from a net worth standpoint, is which is now worth like forty or fifty thousand dollars. No, 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 it's worth uh. five thousand now. So, so <laughs> okay. I, it, yeah, no, I, I'm not. I didn't. I, yeah, I don't even know. I, I, I won't even say which ones I'm, I'm in. But it is. It's to keep. It's so that I can talk to clients about it, so that I can see it going up and it going down, and so that I get you know anything you invest in you. You research on the internet, you get news feeds, you get information on it. So I, the more I am in different things, the more information I get on things and I can talk semi-intelligently about them. Uh, and you know, it's hard to the crypt. Yeah. Crypto is just, it's, it's a unique industry right now. We'll see where it is in a year from now. Love it.
0: Okay. Well, that I think that kind of wraps up our episode. I asked all the questions that I really wanted to talk to you about. And I'm really, really pleased with the way that this discussion turned out because this was super helpful for me. I really think that the Roth Option is the best choice for me. And I'm going to make sure that Colin listens to this so he can hear you say that it's probably a really good option for him too. And of course, you should do research as everyone listening should. If you want any more information about this, Google is your best friend. We will have a lot of links to the things that we discussed in the show notes, which can be found at slash money show 200. Yay! I'm so excited. Kyle, thank you so much for your time today because this was. Fabulous. Kyle has been on previous episodes, number 41 and number 84. So, if you would like to hear his answers to our famous four questions, he's got some really great ones because he's so smart. <laughs> Kyle, master of all the things. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate yeah. you.
1: Thank you. This was a great discussion. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks.
0: Okay, that was Kyle Mast dropping all the knowledge bombs. Scott, what did you think of the show today?
1: I loved it. I think we had a great
2: debate. Uh, I love the the Roth discussion. I love the discussion about what to do with too much money at the end of your life and how to plan around that because people don't really think through that. But if you're going to achieve FI and you're going to be conservative about it and go by the 4% rule and maybe have a couple of other secrets you know, up your sleeve like a pension or rental properties or whatever in addition to that 4% rule, you're probably going to end your life much wealthier than wherever you start your retirement from. And that's something to plan around or at least to, have, to know what's up and to know the options, the good options that will accrue from there. And then, of course, I really love the discussion about uh, where to invest here in 2021 with every asset class seemingly high and inflation on the horizon. What a conundrum. Um, what a fun challenge at the strategic yeah, I, level.
0: I learned a lot from talking to Kyle, as I always do. And uh, But you know, Kyle is not the only source of information. He's not the end-all be-all, and he doesn't know all the tricks and tips. So we would like to invite you to join our Facebook group, which can be found at Facebook.com slash groups slash BP Money and come in and share your tips and tricks. The Roth, uh, the Roth 401k, I thought was a fantastic discussion. It has actually changed the way that I am investing in my 401k. We've actually maxed out my husband's 401k this year. So since it's a self-directed, we're gonna go in and see if we can pull back those contributions and recontribute into the Roth category just to get a little bit more into our Roth 401ks. But I'm super excited for everything that I've learned today. And I would love to hear your tips as well. So please join us in our Facebook group so we can chat with you too.
2: Yeah. And this is the fun stuff. I mean, like we talk about a lot of things that are, you know, there's always black and white and gray, there's always gray in the world of personal finance. But sometimes it can, we can get to a little bit closer to black and white when we're hearing about certain expenses, like, hey, you've really got to cut back expenses here if you want to build wealth. The fundamentals just aren't there. Today was all gray, and this is the kind of fun stuff to discuss in the, in the Facebook group because there's going to be a lot of smart people who will disagree with Kyle. And me and maybe mindy on a couple of these things in terms of the approach with roth versus 401k there is no right answer you're guessing at future government policy and your future income your present versus future income states 30 years down the road in some cases that's literally the guess that i'm making right now with the roth versus the 401k how can you possibly have a concrete right answer no way. There's an art. And I'd love to get pushback or feedback or debate and dialogue about the right versus wrong there. And, and especially on the crypto side as well, um, as, you know, as, you, as a lot of you are aware, I've had an evolution of thinking on the crypto side over the last couple of years um, to my embarrassment and uh, all that kind of good stuff.
0: I would like to say I have had an evolution of crypto so people don't bombard me with, oh, here, let me show you all the great things about crypto. Um, but I am looking for a crypto expert to come on and explain it to us, explain it like I'm five, so that we can share this information with our listeners so they can make their own decision when armed with the facts. Okay, Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. From episode 200 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Scott Trench and I am Mindy Jensen, saying thank you for listening to these last 200 episodes. And here's to at least 2,000 more.